Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Again, please, if you can, please consider subscribing to us or uh, making a financial donation, even if it's one time, via our Patreon account. Um, Details for how to do that will be in the episode notes. For those of you that have been longtime Patreon subscribers, thank you. Um, This isn't really possible without you. Your help is much appreciated. And on with the show. Um, let me say or let me share something that's kind of been growing in me. Um, maybe those of you that follow us on Facebook will note a kind of regular problem I have with social media. You know, the idea is grand in concept, you know, a platform upon which you can share things and and everyone have access to a great deal of information. Um, that seems fantastic at, at that level. Um, unfortunately, it gets put into, like everything else, that first obstacle I mentioned in the last episode it goes through an egoic filter that pretty much just rearranges bits of information so as to confirm a person in their already solidified identity. Um, And one of the things that more than ever does that is the discussion that takes place without video support. You know, there was a time when when the internet was new and we used to communicate with each other through those news groups. Almost impossible to get a video up. But today with smartphones, it, it is just so easy to make a position, state, state a position, share a perspective, and then to offer video video support. Right, it's a, a picture's worth a thousand words kind of thing. But what happens instead is that there is this dominance of text over video support. And there's no doubt in my mind that behind all that is a huge, huge ego problem, a fear. Really, it's the fear of fraud. You'll, you'll have all kinds of, just like all fears, you'll have all the great reasons for it, right? So, oh, n- you know, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not here to uh, prove anything. Okay, then why say anything at all? Or, um, you know, some sort of weird, and, and it's funny because it comes mostly from the secular materialist, some sort of cultic, like secrecy 
uh, that what they do is is going to be tainted or is too too valuable to be put on the internet. I mean, no doubt that a lot of it goes to, in some cases, towards a marketing scheme, you know, to to hide or to or to uh, you know to hide what one doesn't know, so people will pay for it, or um, in some cases to lure in people uh, who don't know, uh, believing there's something of value there. But there's also no doubt that in most cases, uh, the absence of video and the preponderance, the, the dominance, the, the outright dominance in such a technological uh, age where video is so easy to post, that, that textual dominance, there's no doubt that it goes to support uh, just how poorly people are in their actual skill. Last night, you know, this point reminds me of something. Um, last night I watched uh, the movie The Menu. Um, there was one part in it that I found pretty profound, and I'm not sure if I'm elaborating on it or if it was actually there, but... There was a foodie in the, for those who don't know, it's a kind of a cultural critique on, on how the, the art, the artistry of cuisine, like all other modern art, has been thoroughly corrupted uh, as it has been economized into our, our capital systems. And there's one person in the movie who's your you know your foodie person uh they know the name of techniques they know the name of ingredients uh they know how to um, appreciate the the art and by which they themselves gain of the cultural capital of the artistry and the the main character kind of calls him out on it um, on how he knows all these things. He knows, in essence, the discourse, uh, and then puts him in the kitchen and, and has him try to cook something, and it's just basically slop. And he accuses the foodie of, um, in knowing the discourse, in the discourse being so accessible, so readily repeatable, um, that he's taken out the, the mystery of art which is what makes art, art. And that is very much related to me on, on what goes on in, in social media with this domination of words over images in an age where images are so easily accessible. The discourse is just so readily available and the mystery is gone and so we don't have people that are actually questing for the mystery they already know it, but they don't. And this is bringing to me a kind of growing, not yet mature, but I can tell it's growing, um, a kind of, let's say, a losing interest in sharing information. And the way that I'm getting past it now is to answer direct, clear questions that people on the internet have. 
Outside of that, I, I think I'm done. So we have, for example, a new series on our Facebook page called Gateway Aikido. And those are specific questions that people have asked. And um, in that exchange of information, I have asked people, hey, send me a video of what you're talking about. And uh, the videos that you see produced in that series is from that exchange. So that still kind of interests me. Um, and so here in the podcast, it's probably going to be mainly ma made up of questions people have asked me. Um, I think everything that could be said has been said. Um, and so we'll just, if there's questions, we'll answer those questions. And if not, um, we'll do something else. So this episode is three questions that I received. Uh, it might be a shorter episode than previous episodes, but one never knows because all the talks are spontaneous. Here's question one. As a historian of religion, do you think Mappo is the observation of the cycle of birth, aging, sickness, and dying of a teaching before it gets revitalized by someone else having the mystical experience? For a first-time listener, let me uh, explain what Mappo is. I mentioned it in the last podcast, but it's been mentioned several times. Um, through the series. Uh, Mapo is a Japanese term, a Japanese Buddhist term, and it refers to an age when the, the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, uh, are, is no longer viable as a technology of self because of the surrounding environmental conditions. Uh, there's three ages according to Japanese Buddhism, and this is the last age. I would first answer yes, uh, but I would point out, so yes, uh, this is an observation of the cycle of birth, uh, aging, sickness, and dying, uh, just applied to a teaching. And, and so there I would point out first that I've mentioned several times that pre-modern thought is mostly marked by what I call a concentric epistemy. And the analogy there for the modern to easily understand is kind of like your Russian stacking dolls. The philosophical underlying point is that there is a unity to the universe and uh, there, there's like a, a theory of everything, so to speak, and it is basically being replicated over and over and over again. So, for example, uh, you would have a microcosmic level and a macrocosmic level, but within the two of them, there'd be this unifying, unifying single um, concept or principle. So as there is in a human life, a single human life, uh, there's a, a process of birth, aging, sickness, and then ultimately dying. And then, so that would be like one of the Russian stacking dolls. And then that same process would be applied to a more of a macro level. So that would go to your culture or and eventually that would go 
to your uh, to the planet and so on and so on and so on. So that concept here was applied to the teachings of Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, that eventually uh, the surrounding environment would be of such uh, value that the teaching itself would become corrupted and by default then uh, the teaching would no longer be viable as a technology of self. In one of our earliest episodes, I pointed out um, that one of the things that I utilized in my own, um, my former life as a historian of religion, uh, one of the cultural concepts that I used to understand the, the societies that I was studying was that a teaching kind of passes uh, through various stages itself. Um, the first one is you have the person that has the experience, uh, and from that experience, uh, eventually you're going to have the rise of what I have called the priestly caste. These are specialists in the teachings that surround the experience, but unlike the first person or the first group of people, they're really no longer interested in the experience. They're more interested in the discourse of the experience. And then after them, you have the development of what I would, what I've called an academic class. And this is a group of people who are no longer part of the actual tradition, but they're specialized, they're specialists in the discourse developed by the priestly caste. And you can see that in Aikido, and that kind of goes back to what I said about uh, social media. So you, uh, you'll, you'll have, at this phase, uh, we have people who are more specialists in the discourse of Aikido uh, than that actually practice Aikido. So a lot of the people that talk on social media used to practice Aikido, that, that, by which I mean they used to actually put a gi on and get on the mat but they no longer do that. Or I would say there's even a great deal of people who uh, probably get on the mat only a couple nights or a few nights a week, um, but they talk like they're actually doing the required four to six hours of training a day when they don't. So in that sense, they're very much like that foodie character in that movie, The Menu. There's somebody that's just a specialist in the discourse. Uh, they can say all the right stuff. They, they can uh, um, think about all the right stuff. They can repeat all the right words, but they can't cook at all. And this kind of cultural progression that happens naturally in, in the development of any kind of spiritual tradition, um, it is in its way a, a kind of mapo process at a very localized level, by which I mean this, this process is inevitable. What mapo means as an age, as an era, however, is that it is happening everywhere. What I would point out as a historian of religion is a couple things here. Um, the concept of mapo was raised in Japan hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And I think what it does is it's, it is pointing out a kind of localized 
uh, degeneration of a teaching that is happening. And from that, I would extrapolate that um, mapo does actually happen like that. It's not like a, a wave of, you know, like some sort of uh, temporal uh, time shift that happens and, and it just takes over the entire landscape. That instead, it actually happens uh, from locality to locality to locality. So there's always pockets of um, legitimate, authentic training or a legitimate, authentic way. But what is being denoted in the concept of mapo is that there are some areas, uh, and those areas are growing, where the teaching is no longer viable. Looking back, and, and here just using Buddhist history for a second here, um, you know, the concept of mapo gave rise to the Pure Land School or to Nichiren Buddhism. Uh, so we're, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But uh, there seems to be something unique in, in today. Um, while there may have been uh, some corruption at a local level uh, that made some that brought some utility to the concept of a degenerated teaching. Um, there's something unique about today's world. Uh, and I would say it is the rate at which such degeneration disseminates. Um, and I would say um, it is also, so how fast it disseminates, how fast degeneration actually occurs, and also how slowly um, and how, um, how much resistance is put on any kind of authentic teaching. So some of the things that would lead towards this, for example, would be the the use of the internet and the use of travel, um, the ability to travel through aircraft and things like this, um, the use of wiring, funding, uh, all of this kind of stuff uh, makes it very, very uh, efficient, any kind of widespread corrupted corruption uh, or corrupted teaching. So, for example, um, I would I would personally put all of the all, all of Federation Aikido in there, in the sense that uh, when measured against the founders Aikido, which was both martially viable and spiritually viable, and had a um, internal aspect to it, they could do an Aikido adhesion, could do a Kokyu projection. Um, you have more and more people more readily, more efficiently, more quickly uh, signing up and forming a community in an Aikido that does not do any of those things. And the rate at which that happened, even even in the time of, um, let's say, when, the, uh, when some of the recently passed uh, Shihan had made their way into Europe and the United States, uh, so... Even at that time in the 70s, 
the rate at which that happens now is way, way faster, way more efficient. Um, that would make the, the, the 70s and 80s look like they were barely moving. And in the face of that efficiency, in the face of everybody wanting you know, a sixth dawn uh, in a system that no longer at all resembles the founders aren't, um, you have kind of by default a huge pressure on any of those pockets of authentic teaching uh, to remain uh, accessible and to disseminate their information. Um, I think you, I've, I've mentioned before in other podcasts, like for most people, they, they kind of go down a checklist in their head. They're all, it's the federation checklist, right? They're like, which federation are you in? Uh, Who is your teacher in the federation? Are you Japanese? Are you male? Do you dress like I dress? And do you do the techniques the way that I was shown how to do the technique? And, you know, sometimes we even see, is did you name the technique like I named the te technique, which just seems totally silly. Um, but if you haven't, then I don't, you're, you can't be good. Uh, so you, you have like how easy it is for somebody uh, to do something so contrary to what the founder is doing and dismiss something that is very much what the founder was doing. I think that is happening at a rate and at a degree, at an intensity like never before. So although there probably was uh, uh, some sparks of Mapo that gave rise uh, righteously to Pure Land and to uh, Nichiren. I would say uh, we're probably deep, deep into Mapo now in all kinds of ways and for all kinds of teachings. Regarding the second part of this question, the part that is uh, mentioning uh, are these before, I'll, I'll finish the quote here. So before it gets, before these traditions get revitalized by someone else having the mystical experience. So again, that, that cultural process where you go from the mystic or the person having the experience to the priestly caste and then to the academic caste uh, where you're just talking about a meta discourse. So you, you have the actual experience, the priest will, 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 um, will be... Uh, in charge of a discourse, and then the academics are in charge of a meta-discourse. Um, as that process happens, it, it happens all over. It, it, it continually happens. But I, I would say that in a lot of cases, um, probably in more cases than it doesn't, uh, the mystic does not produce a priestly caste. Um, there's a lot of people throughout history that stay true to the experience and they just produce, uh, they're, they're, they almost work against the development of a priestly caste. That, that happens quite a bit in human history. It's just us moderns, um, we specialize in discourses, so we just don't pay attention to those people. Uh, we, we haven't heard of them. Um, 
And if we do, we're usually in that other process where we're subverting and negating their actual mystical experience with our specialization in their discourse or in a development of discourse around their person, around their experience. In many ways, one of the, the, the difficulty and the downside of being a modern person in light of something like Mapo or in light of that cultural process from experience to discourse to meta-discourse is that we are, we are predisposed to look for the tradition. We are predisposed to look for the, the, big, the big group, uh, the big teaching, and we are very suspicious of the isolated individual. But from this point of view, it's actually the isolated individual uh, more than anyone else who's going to get you back to this level of experience, this pre-discourse um, practice. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know. I think if I look back in my life, I just, I just, there's something so repelling about the large group mentality, the herd mentality. There, there's ways you can reason. I think Nietzsche is the best at it to tell you why it is so wrong. Uh, but there's, there's an intuitive sense too uh, that I think anyone can have if they just sort of look around a little bit and realize how much shit is actually being uh, shoveled and, and pushed out as truth or as accurate or as, you know, pure when it's just not uh, and it's just something that goes with the mass the gr the masses uh, the mass being formed My, myself you know I just kind of turned off by that and so much of my martial history was about just getting to the one person uh, getting to the one person uh, as much as possible um, in that way looking back you know I was it didn't seem to be a, 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 an overt plan, but looking back now, I can see that I usually ended up, you know, at the at the feet of a master and and not part of a, of this larger federation where uh, the master is supposedly represented uh, abstractly in in the group being formed around him or her. You know, in that in that way, I think it's it's always been undesirable to me to train with a representative of the master. You should seek out that person, uh, and you should put yourself in in a discipleship with that person, and the federation or the larger political body the priestly caste, let alone the academic caste. I mean, these, these are irrelevant and should be subverted even, uh, as well as negated, of course. This has always been my view. And this view is consistent with the idea that um, there's a process to mapo, and it goes from locality to locality. So the best thing you can do is find that person, um, that, that isolated, independent, 
uh, person who is not producing uh, the Federation, the big group, the big tradition. Question two. This question's on the methodology of training. Based on what we hear from O-sensei students in the way he taught, do you think the non-structured way, at least non-structured in the modern understanding, uh, took place because of the nature of pre-modern thinking? Or do you think it's because seasoned martial artists had joined O-sensei's dojo? and by which they could handle uh, a less structured pedagogy? Or do you think it's a mixture of both? Um, I he mentions names in the question. He's, I, I have asked others uh, who practice both Daitoryu and Aikido uh, why so much of the curriculum, of the Daitoryu curriculum, has been taken out of the Aikido curriculum. And... He said he did not know why. Uh, there's two kinds of. I think there's two questions in there. The first question is, let's say, let's say this: Why was O Sensei's uh, instruction, and let's put that in air quotes, non-structured in comparison to today's today's uh, Aikido instruction? I don't. I I would agree. Yes. Yes. So short answer: Yes, it is related to. Uh, pre-modern thought, uh, but not in the sense that they did not have an appreciation for uh, logic or efficiency. No, I do not think it had to do with the fact that uh, O-sensei students had already trained in other martial arts and therefore could go ahead and understand what he was talking about. If you look at the aim of Budo, and we'll just mention this again, that the aim of Budo as, as a manifestation of East Asian, the East Asian primary technology of self, uh, which is the uh, mystical experience, or to put it more objectively, which is the experience of having reconciled the subject-object dichotomy. If we put it in my discourse, it is the experience of reconciling the ego-tripartite mind with the God mind. Again, in this sense, Budo, um, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism is very much in alignment with all the other uh, primary uh, worldly uh, world religious traditions. They all, they all have this goal as, as, at the level of the experiencer. At the level of the discourse, they start to veer away from each other, but that is a corruption of the teaching. And at the level of the uh, meta-discourse, by far, they are, they're almost counter to each other. This is how, for example, you'll have throughout history uh, Zen monks who don't really know Jesus will read some parts of the gospel and go, oh, who's this? Who was this? Uh, uh, is this a Chan? This is a Chinese. The old thing is like a Chinese uh, master from their tradition. That is the goal of Budo, 
And that was the goal of Osensei's, uh, even as he adopted his own um, Omotokyo discourse. It's the same goal. Okay, so that is what you're teaching. You, you do have a martial art, and it does have a martial component, but in a concentric way, what is martial is also what is uh, awakening, is also what is spiritually mature. You cannot divide the two. The process for one is the process for the other. So while we may think, for example, and I think this is a mistake, I think the pre-moderns had it right, we may think that becoming martially viable is something that you can learn in a linear fashion uh, and to the, to the extreme, that is where we get this notion of plug-and-play self-defense. So you're going to, uh, a guy's going to come in with this attack and then you learn an, a response for that attack. And we point out to where that where that works, so we end up believing it more and more that it works, but we end up ignoring the fact that where it works, we have reduced the field uh, greatly from the infinite to the very finite. So uh, where it works in our minds is in competition, but competition has done a lot to, uh, to narrow the amount of options that someone could come in with. And so you can develop a game uh, in response because there's only so many things they can come in with. But the original arts were not developed for such games. They were developed for the infinite of what could happen. And as such, you had to martially be trained in the infinite. There is no practical way you could be trained in the infinite along a plug-and-play paradigm. And so what they did is they had your mind tap into the infinite hence the spiritual component that I mentioned in our last blog on what is Aiki. A couple examples that I have posted that would demonstrate this point um, over, the, over the years on our Facebook page is one it was recently posted regarding an MMA champion who got in a street fight. Very, very skilled when the street fight was duplicating the environment of the MMA arena. So one-on-one, -on -one, uh, all good to go. But once it got to the inclusion of more than one attacker, where your, the, the flank, your flank and your rear were actually not covered by the rule sets, uh, and when a two-by-four was brought into the fight, uh, it looked as if the MMA fighters who were champions in the sport knew nothing. When you got clocked by the two-by-four, uh, having no clue how to defend against the leverage weapon, and the other one had his back to the rest of the hostiles as he was engaged with one and just got hit in the back of the head as if he knew nothing. Another video that demonstrates that point is one where uh, UFC champions went in a kind of goodwill visit to the Marine training 
Again, the Marines are not going to train for limited fields, and they do practice today in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but they haven't lost uh, they haven't lost touch with the fact that pretty much anything can happen on the battlefield. And uh, in the one-on-one arena, you you could see in in the environment in which the MMA environment is being duplicated, uh, the MMA athletes, champions, all. Uh, can very, very much demonstrate how skilled they were. But once they went into the forest and they're on the side of a hill and there's weapons involved and there's multiple attackers, in essence, an environment totally unlike the MMA environment, but an environment that is very possible in a uh, combat arena, such as the Marines might face, you you saw the same thing. The athlete would be attacked from the flank or from the rear as you would become hyper-focused on one Marine adversary uh, or have no clue on how to disarm somebody with either a club or a rifle or something like that. And it looked like uh, they didn't know anything, uh, even against MMA tactics. So they became very, very open to just simple what I would call a playground foot sweeps and stuff like that. What you're seeing in that is that the specialization is being revealed uh, in the inclusion of arenas and tactics from arenas that are outside of the specialized environment. That, that is the environment originally of the Budo arts, the, the martial arts. So whether we're talking spiritually or martially, because it is concentric, uh, we're talking about the, the experience of facing the infinite. And the worst thing you can do in that regards is to give linear progression-based steps to training, that that actually interferes with the training. So if you look at prior Buddhist training, you won't see like you might see today in uh, a mind a Western-based mindfulness training where you, you do these kind of steps. You didn't see that. What you saw instead uh, and which you can still see in those authentic pockets where it is happening, is you saw that the person entered into a relationship with the teacher, and the teacher is uh, somebody who is constantly adapting the teachings to the disciples' needs to gain affinity with the infinite. Uh, in particular, because of how, if we go back to my discourse, uh, the reconciliation between the ego, the egoic mind and the God mind requires the cessation of the egoic mind. And so what you see in most of these traditions, let's probably all, I would just say most, uh, only because of mathematical possibility, but every single tradition that I've ever seen and or done is the teacher is uh, constantly uh, probing and assessing and utilizing the egoic mind to bring a cessation to the egoic mind. 
And there's just no way you can prescribe that outright out front. What we see in, for example, the way... So if we look at my school, we don't do the techniques. The techniques don't go per rank uh, because we're not interested in the rank. We're not interested in the Federation skill in, in the Mapo degeneration of the art. We're still interested in the original reconciliation of the egoic mind and the God mind. We're still interested in the mystical experience. And so there is no point in saying these techniques are this cue, those techniques are that cue. Uh, that, that just makes no sense. But to the person that's in the degenerated tradition, they'll have some sense of progress. What the person in a legitimate or authentic practice is going to realize over time is that the forms are actually the obstacle. The forms are the egoic mind functioning. And this is the exact opposite of what somebody that has a federite mindset. As they learn more forms, gain more rank, they have a, a growing sense of accomplishment, whereas a person in authentic practice would realize time's running out. Uh, I, kn I know all the forms uh, and I've been training for a long time and I'm not having the breakthrough that I want. Uh, it's the exact opposite feeling. Um, it brings you back to the sense that I'm leaving key aspects of my practice off the table. And that is exactly what the teacher does. The teacher helps point that out to the disciple which parts are being left off the table and what explains your lack of process or practice in reconciling the two minds. And there's no rhyme or reason to that because of how personal each egoic mind is, how it functions, how it structures, and also how personal, how individual uh, the releasing of that mind is. There, the, the, the delusion and the utilization of a structured teaching is just a hindrance to that ultimate cessation of it. So I, this is why, in my opinion, you see simultaneously uh, a, a lack of viability spiritually in Aikido, also martially in Aikido, and also why over the decades there's less and less spontaneity uh, and spontaneity training in Aikido uh, because everybody is, has adopted this kind of linear prescription, progression-based uh, pedagogy, and that pedagogy unknowingly inhibits what you ultimately want. So teachers like Osensei, like myself, like Zen masters of old, like uh, uh, Buddhist teachers that are in those pockets of authentic practice today, not yet taken over by Mapo, you're never going to see the kind of structure that we see today in most Federite schools. It's just not there. And that's what, was, that's what Osensei was doing. Um, it was the right teaching for the right thing you're supposed to be learning, and there's just no way around it. It's not a degeneration. It's not a capitalization upon people's other experience uh, in other arts or anything like that. That is how it has always been taught, and if you're still seeking those things, that is how it still has to be taught.
the second part of the second question regarding to uh, why there is this reduction from the Daito-ryu curriculum to what we see in Aikido's Kihon Waza. I think, you know, this is a real historical question and, and someone can do the answer. Uh, this is just not my, I'm, I'm not greatly interested in this kind of historiography anymore. Uh, but I'll answer it as a as a former historian. What what you would do, what I have learned as a historian of of thought. Um, first of all, it's almost guaranteed that the curriculum that we now have identified as Aikido Kihonwaza, you know, what makes that curriculum versus what what is outside of that curriculum. The reason for what marks inside and outside is not going to be anything um, of, of great genius or, or epiphany. Uh, it's going to be something totally stupid and uh, arbitrary and would work more to denounce the Kihon as a sacred body of material than to support it as such. That, that is my experience with history. To answer this question, I don't think we ought to assume that the Daito-ryu curriculum itself remains static and Aikido, Aikido's curriculum remains static. So to, to answer that question between the two traditions, one would also have to simultaneously study uh, change as it occurred in Daito-ryu, not just as it occurred in Aikido. I think you would also have to you would al- also have to do some critical thinking or some reflexive thinking on what what one means by study and what one means by curriculum. So for example, if your if your goal is what I previously mentioned, a reconciliation of the egoic mind and the god mind through martial arts training, uh, you really don't, you only need one technique. You don't, you don't need 10 techniques. This is something that, that I have come to in, in the Aido, and I'll, I'll explain why. So for those that don't train in the Aido, uh, there's various schools. Uh, they're all kind of modern simplifications of schools and also, uh, and or, uh, modern inventions based on earlier schools. They're usually around 10 to 12 techniques in a lot of cases. There's, there's not a great deal of techniques per, per uh, school. And many people train in more than one school. So under Chiba Sensei, for example, you learn several of these schools and about 10 to 12 techniques per, per school. Unlike Aikido Kihonwaza, which does have, I would say, does have a tactical architectural tie to present utilizations. So if you were interested in the martial side of Aikido, the Kihon Waza does teach you um, those tactical architectures, although they don't teach you access to them, and they don't teach you their specificity outright, which are very important things, okay? But uh, if you were in a situation 
where you uh, had to disarm some guy's knife, um, you would know how to do it, okay? When it comes to Yaido, the, the gap between application and uh, what you're studying is even further, further away than what you have in Aikido Kihonwaza. It's further away, not only in the sense that the forms are not true fighting forms, but reductions from fighting forms, but also they're further away in the sense that we don't really get into too many duels anymore. And in that sense, they're, they're different than Aikido Kihonwaza. True, Aikido Kihonwaza is not overtly, directly about self-defense, but in there, you have tactical components that are still relevant to today's environments. In Iaido, I would say it's even less to maybe none. In that sense, then, as a do, as a Tao, as a way to uh, reconcile the egoic mind and the God mind, and no longer primarily or even secondarily in, in, in any kind of meaningful way, a means to defending yourself in our world today. Uh, the, the learning of, of one form after another form after another form after another form to me seems almost pointless unless I'm interested in a cultural artifact. And I'm not. So I'm, I'm not a mu museum curator um, I'm not doing cosplay. I'm not doing uh, LARPing. Uh, and so I, I don't feel the need, the pressing need, to accumulate uh, all of these Eido forms. And what I have noticed is from the perspective, the original and sole and primary perspective of reconciling the egoic mind and the God mind, you don't need all those forms. In, in fact, the accumulation of those forms, the, 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 the making of a cultural artifact of all those forms and one as a keeper of a cultural artifact, becoming a cultural artifact themselves uh, is contrary to the reconciling of the egoic mind with the God mind. And so what I have started to do over over the years, especially from my separation from a federation that trained in all those sword forms, we, we just do a few. We just do one. Uh, what makes us do more than one? The same process that I mentioned before. So you, you would see a deshi whose egoic mind is functioning through the form, and you know that the second form or the sixth form uh, or entirely made-up form uh, is going to bring the trappings of that egoic mind to a visible level for the disciple, and thereby they can continue to work on its cessation because its continuous functioning was happening unconsciously. Well, here would be my, my historical hypothesis um, and where I would first start looking. I would posit that O-sensei had a very similar understanding to what he was doing, 
which would be consistent in how he was doing, how he was doing it. So how was he teaching them? How was he teaching Deshi? He was teaching people in a way that was consistent with centuries of pedagogy, uh, wherein you did not come with a linear progression uh, uh, of instruction. You, you, you dealt with the egoic mind as it arose in the student. Um, and you, you, your teaching was very personable, very, uh, very, very much like a sand mandala. It was very upayic. You just taught that problem. You just addressed that problem. So you did whatever, uh, whatever you needed to. Um, so consistent with that teaching, and which is also consistent with the goal of Budo, the reconciliation of those two minds, it would make sense to me that he did not need the entire curriculum of Daito Ryu, and he just worked on a few things that he was doing. I think, you know, I think what we'll see as moderns in contrast to our assumptions about what curriculum means and what studying means, is that many of the people that we would say were students of O-sensei using our modern understanding of studying under someone, uh, we would say, we would have to end up saying they didn't actually study under him. But under this traditional way uh, these these masters, and you, you'll see this across the the historical record. These masters uh, have great impact by this means over the people that were exposed to them uh, and this process of theirs. So, and, and I think that's more accurate. So, for example, what I mean here is that. Uh, there are some um, historiographical leanings towards, well, O-sensei was in Iwama and uh, Saito trained, and Saito lived in Iwama, so Saito really was the, the only student there. But again, the assumption is there that O-sensei did something different. He, he didn't. He, he did the same thing. He, he was doing that same non-structured, uh, personable um, mentoring kind of thing. Um, and that kind of mentoring, that mentoring actually plants seeds. That's all it does. It plants seeds in the disciples. And it can plant seeds uh, in very short exposures. Uh, and that's what I'm saying. We see that over the, all over the historical record. You see it not only in the sense where uh, somebody will overtly say, you know, I wasn't with this person for very long, but th this is the seed they put in me and, and to up to where those people will pick uh, their heirs, their, their Dharma heirs or their lineage heirs from people that had very little exposure from our uh, point of view. Um, because, why Why is that? Because the reconciliation of the egoic mind and the God mind does not actually require time. It, it's, it most often does, and I would say it does today, uh, more so than ever because of how much the egoic mind drives our world. Uh, but 
it definitely is not a architectural requirement of the reconciliation. It, it can it can happen in in a, in you know in a spark from a stone time, and you don't need to be present for it to happen either. That's the seed will sprout. It'll sprout all at once, and so you don't require that level of of instruction like we have today, where people hang out with their shihan their whole entire lives. You know. Uh, that's really about something else when you look deeper at it. It's really about uh, those capital systems through uh, that the art now functions through. So to, I guess, sum up this last part, I think what you had was Osensei had totally zeroed in on the spiritual component, the reconciliation of the egoic and the god mind, using his Omotokyo discourse, um, and you just don't need a lot of techniques for that. So he did not train people in a lot of techniques. Um, and I think that's what explains the the great reduction uh, from Daito Ryu's curriculum, assuming that it it uh, it changed itself over the time period in question. And then the last question. Um, Let's just read it verbatim. Uh, three, again, on the religion topic. I thought it was very interesting what you said about the Christian map. This is a reference to our last podcast. Being born and raised uh, in, I'm going to kind of make this more anonymous, in a country where Christianity is all around, I veered away from it once I found martial arts and Buddhism. Maybe because I witnessed so much hypocrisy surrounding it, and perhaps, or perhaps being too young to look further, but I never really saw a clear method of practice being transmitted. I guess prayer is one such practice, looking back now, but there was always a sense of arrogance and self-sanctification when a prayer was being conducted out loud. And my question is, have any ancient methods been preserved? And I, I, this would take me back to answer one. I, I think there's an immediate corruptive force that happens for something to become a tradition. You, you automatically have to go from the mystic to the priestly caste. Again, I don't, I don't mean that in the sense of, of men who wear collars. These are like ritual specialists, um, discourse, doctrine specialists. That's what I mean. Um, and then you have this, uh, this academic class, this meta-discourse uh, cast of people. That, that's what makes a tradition. And the second you go from the mystic to that uh, ritual discourse uh, institutional specialist, you, you already have the obstacles to the mystical experience, which is what I was saying in, in the answer to question two. The, the second you, you go, first you do this, then you do that, and you have to do this for that many hours and this for that many years, you, you are already corrupting the teaching because you've already generated an obstacle to the reconciliation of the egoic mind and the God mind. That, that whole process the 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 linear instruction the idea that it can be so instructed those are all the functioning of the egoic mind and since 
since the mystical experience is the cessation of the egoic mind, there is no way that is not anything but a corruption of the teaching. So anytime you have a tradition uh, that we would go, that's a tradition or that's a religion and we can point to it and it has been disseminated all over as it has accumulated and constructed the masses of its believers, you, it's already gone. It's already gone. Now, within it, of course, as I said, you will have those pockets of authentic practice. It's not everywhere, though. So just like you have, um, you have a lot of Aikido schools that will have this kind of uh, very linear and delineated uh, pedagogy, and you will see, for example, a... a lack of viability spiritually or martially, and no uh, no real training in the spontaneity of the art because all that goes together. Uh, and you would see that it'll be uh, marked positively with rank and title um, and prestige within a federation. And all that would be part of Mapo. Uh, that's not what the founder did. That's not how he did it. Uh, it's something entirely else. But inside the larger realm of Aikido, you'll have somebody else who doesn't do any of that. There's Same thing goes with a religious tradition. Inside, uh, you'll have pockets uh, where people are basically returning to the original mystical practices. Um, in Christianity, and, and I think... I think um, Let's say this, I, there's, to me, uh, there's, there's no way you can have a reconciliation of the egoic mind and the God mind. There's no way you can reach awakening uh, and you have a disdain for uh, one religious tradition or any other religious tradition. I, that's just the egoic mind functioning. So there's no way, I think, you're you can be Buddhist and you're anti-Christian. That that's just not possible. You're you've missed the point. But there's a lot of Buddhists that way, especially in the West. So I think um, a person that that has experienced a degeneration of a tradition like Christianity, but knows they can't be a Buddhist and an anti-Christian at the same time. I think they would benefit from tapping into those pockets within Christian history that maintained an, an authentic uh, Christian practice. Um, because I think it, they first have to learn how to read the Gospels um, in, in that way and not in the way that the degenerated tradition has come to tell them it should be read. And so let me point you to um, what are called the Desert Fathers, the Catholic Saints, uh, Thomas Akempis, Meister Eckhart, and also in particular uh, St. John of the Cross. Uh, and his treatise on the dark night. Uh, I think when you read these things, 
especially if you're practicing Zen Buddhism, you're going to see um, how much overlap there is in terms of the loss of self or the cessation of the egoic mind. Uh, if you're into the yogic traditions uh, and any of the Hindu traditions, the larger Hindu traditions, I think you're going to see um, incredible overlap with things like uh, karmic yoga and bhakti yoga uh, in the same way. And very interesting thing for an Aikidoka is you're going to also finally understand why O-sensei uh, brought Aiki back to the concept of love. Um, it's important to note that um, love... So oftentimes, uh, modern Aikido will say, Omotokyo is a Shinto uh, tradition. And that is just not true. It is not true. Omotokyo uh, is best left described as a new religion. But it's a particular one. Um, it is one uh, that through contact with Western thought and Western thinkers at that time, gained access to these people I just told you you might want to read. And by which um, Deguchi, so O-sensei's religious mentor, uh, found a way to tap into uh, the kind of universality that marks O-sensei's sense of what Aikido does, okay? Uh, there's, nothing, there's nothing universal about Shinto, uh, especially Shinto proper. Uh, Shinto proper was really a very local-specific and very much family specific, and it took took a long, 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 long time before uh, the locality branched out. But even then, it it, it did not become any kind of uh, universal statement on things. It's pushing in that direction, but it's primarily because of people like uh, Deguchi, who had brought in uh, uh, Christian mystic. Uh, ideas, which he himself uh, was exposed to as he reached out to uh, Western thinkers that were themselves trying to find a universal, a universal principle to all world religions, and so to all religion. And so Deguchi tapped into that, and that is where O-sensei tapped into this notion of love and Aiki being love. It makes perfect sense, um, but, but especially and only when you understand what these Christian mystics, these pockets of authentic practice were doing uh, and saying and thinking. Then, then you know exactly what uh, O-sensei meant when he said Aiki is love. Um, and I would, again, go into our own writings on that because uh, I wholeheartedly agree with O-sensei and, 
and we I have I have written many times on it, spoken many times on it, and we've had many podcasts on the dichotomy between love and fear, uh, between Kokyu and Aiki, uh, between the God mind and the egoic mind. And all that is really grounded in the thought of the Christian mystics. All right, uh, listener and everyone else, I hope I, I answered your questions and I hope I answered them in a way that raises more, more thinking on your part. Um, and by that thinking, more uh, individuality. That's what is key. All right, thank you so much, everyone. Until the next time, peace be with you. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.